You're listening to episode 224 of IDRA Class Notes. Both the school districts in tandem, unfortunately, with the Texas Education Agency. They had a rational basis for excluding these children because it would result in a cost savings that they felt was more important than the harm that would be caused by excluding the children. The court disagreed and said to deny children the basic benefits of education was totally indefensible and unjust. Hello everyone, welcome to the IDRA Class Notes Podcast. I'm Paige Duggins-Clay, IDRA's Chief Legal Analyst, and I'm here with a very special guest who longtime Class Notes listeners will recognize, Dr. Albert Cortez, IDRA's retired Director of Policy. We're continuing our new series of episodes on education and the law, where we highlight our nation's landmark civil rights cases and statutes. Today, we're focusing on the historic case of Filer v. Doe, which turns 40 years old on June 15th of this year. Although these are typically audio only, today's listeners are in for a special treat, in honor of Plyler's 40th birthday and in honor of IDRA's 50th anniversary coming up later this year, we're publishing our complete video conversation with Dr. Cortez today. Now I could spend an entire podcast sharing Dr. Cortez's incredible work on education policy and litigation, and maybe I will. But in the interest of ensuring we have plenty of time to benefit from his expertise and learn from his considerable experience in this case, I'll be really brief. For more than three decades, Dr. Cortez has served as a technical advisor and resource authority and was extensively involved in the development of school finance reform, dropout prevention, immigrant education, student discipline, state assessment, and expanding higher education access. Dr. Cortez worked with IDRA founder, Dr. Jose Cardenas to pioneer school finance reform in Texas. He worked on numerous school-related court cases, including this historic case that we're talking about today, and also including the desegregation case of USB Texas. As you'll hear in this podcast, Dr. Cortez played a critical role in this case that we're focusing on, and I'm so grateful to welcome him back. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Cortez. Thank you, Paige. Very, very happy to be here with you. Now let's jump right in. Plyler v. Doe was decided in the U.S. Supreme Court in 1982. 40 years ago this year. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of the case and maybe we can start with what was the social and the political climate like in Texas in 1982? Actually, by the time the case was decided in 1982, seven years had actually passed from the time that the state officially changed state law to provide for the exclusion of all undocumented immigrant children from the public schools of Texas. The law was changed via a very low-key backdoor amendment that was added to a bill. There was no debate on the question. There was no opportunity for people to present a testimony on it. It was added by a legislator to an existing bill and was adopted in 1975. The author of the amendment was a state representative from South Texas. We'll keep it that way. I'm sure he has gone to regret that uh, introduction at some point in his life. But as a result of that amendment, thousands of immigrant, undocumented immigrant children 
that had been attending public schools up to that change in the law were subsequently denied admission into all Texas public schools. So the, the law, again, was, was passed uh, towards the end of the 1975 session around June. It took a while for superintendents to be advised by the state education agency that legal residency was a requirement now in order for you to get state funding to educate undocumented immigrant students. But they did have a provision, somewhat meaningless, that if the district wanted to go ahead and enroll undocumented children, they could do so provided the children paid full tuition, which at that point in time was about $2,000 per student, which was totally out of reach out of for the 99% of the students that were impacted. So after the, the change, the law was adopted, providing for exclusion, were trickled out to school districts and, and a formal notice went out from the state education agency in the fall of, of that 75, 76 school year. And slowly but surely, school districts began to take advantage of the opportunity to refuse admission to undocumented children in grades K through 12. But the driving force, though, was that, as Dr. Cardenas pointed out in, in numerous writings that he put together on the case, the real driving force had to do with lack of sufficient funding that was being provided to public schools at all grade levels and the failure to provide additional supplemental funding for students with special needs. So because of flaws and inequities in the Texas school finance system, districts are under a lot of pressure to subsidize the delivery of public education. And for a, a subgroup of districts in the state, they saw the opportunity to exclude, in some cases, 10, in a few cases, over 100 students at a time as a way of, quote, saving money and allowing them to balance the budget on the backs of these uh, defenseless children. We at IDRA and our friends over at MALDEF and other legal groups watched developments because we wanted to see what kind of response we were going to see after the law was passed. And fortunately, many districts in the state of Texas continued to enroll and educate uh, undocumented children, regardless of the change in the law. The other reality is that two-thirds of the districts in the state didn't have any undocumented children enrolled. So for the majority of districts in the state didn't have an impact. The districts that were most, most critically impacted, though, were districts on the border of South Texas and larger districts that had high concentrations of Mexican-American student populations already living in their borders. And migration experts know that there's a phenomenon that has noted that recent immigrants arrive in the country, they tend to settle where there are clusters of immigrants from that home country. So those concentrations were the areas where the undocumented population 
continue to uh, cluster as well, we- Well, maybe that's a good place to give some additional context. And so the background is super helpful here. And you've alluded to sort of watching out for, you know, how the case was unfolding and how it was developed. Can you talk a little bit about who the plaintiffs were in this case? You know, the you know as we know, cases are named after the lead plaintiffs, but here we have Plyler v. Doe, unnamed children. Who were the kiddos who brought this lawsuit? Well, the, the first uh, plaintiff that actually used their uh, last name in the court filings was in the first challenge that went before the state court uh, system, Garza. Mr. and Mrs. Garza filed suit on behalf of their child who was being excluded from the Houston Independent School District. And the Garza family decided that they were going to take the lead and challenge that exclusion of their child, total exclusion from access to education. That uh, went before a state district court. And unfortunately, the state district court in Garza versus Houston, upheld the exclusion of undocumented children when it was tried before the state court system. In all the subsequent cases, Paige, in order to protect the clients, because there was a lot of sensitivity to the fact that if the clients were actually to use their real name in, in the actual filing and the name of the child, that was going to expose them to INS follow-up and INS action. So the courts decided for the safety of the families, they would use pseudonames. So we had Doe versus Platter, we had Roe versus Reagan, variations on that same term, so as to protect the families that were filing. There were all told about seven different court cases filed in federal court rather than the actual names of the children. But all of the children were undocumented students whose parents had come here without proper documentation, but had enrolled in many cases. They were already attending uh, public schools. And when the law changed, were excluded from participating in public education altogether. This group of very brave parents fighting for their children, decided to go through the federal court system. And the first federal case that was filed was in Doe versus Plyder. That is why it is known as, as a lead case. And that was filed in Tyler, Texas, on behalf of, again, plaintiff, a young elementary school student, Doe, uh, who was challenging the Tyler Independent School District decision to totally uh, deny access to education to that child. Yeah, and just to be clear for our, our listeners who aren't, you know, immigration lawyers, when you when you say that the safety of the families that was at stake and INS would show up, I mean, what I'm hearing is that, you know, by filing this lawsuit, they became a target for deportation activity or other immigration enforcement. And that was an important reason why it was critical to protect these families' identities. It, it was critical. And that was one reason that it took the bravest of the brave individuals to put themselves in harm's way, which they saw as essential, you know, for, for the benefit of their children. 
And so you mentioned we're in Tyler, Texas. You know, our listeners are not just from Texas. They're all across the country. Can you give our outsiders um, a perspective? What's Tyler, Texas like? And what was it like litigating an immigration civil rights case in, in this community? Well, Tyler was selected in part because it was somewhat typical of many of the smaller school districts around the state. Enrolled, uh, I'd say, at the time, probably around 10,000 students total. It had a handful of undocumented immigrant children enrolled. So there weren't really significant cost savings that would have been realized to, to the district. But there were sub elements within the community and within the school system that felt that undocumented immigrant children didn't deserve to be educated in Texas public schools using essentially an erroneous assumption that they were here and that the education of their children was being exclusively subsidized by legal Texas residents when when the truth was that these families pay taxes like every other family. They pay property taxes either through rents or, or payment on their homes also paid sales taxes, they paid uh, gasoline taxes, and like any other person living in the state of Texas, there was no escaping their contributing to the state uh, economy. So there really was an issue, a real concern that people saw that somehow or other these undocumented immigrant children were being subsidized when in, in reality, the parents were just seeking the benefit of education, just as education was being provided to every other taxpaying individual in the state of Texas. Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought up the sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric that was certainly underpinning the law and its ability to get gain traction, right? And then in this community, sort of this desire to implement the law despite having the discretion not to do so, you know, we're seeing parallels of that sort of rhetoric, xenophobic rhetoric today. So we'll talk about that maybe at the end of our conversation. But despite this climate and despite the sort of safety considerations that we talked about, um, Maldef and, and others still chose this venue, the Eastern District of Texas, to bring this lead case. What was special about the Eastern District of Texas um, from a civil rights litigation standpoint? An important factor is that in the uh, Eastern District of Texas was the federal court over which Judge William Wayne Justice presided. And Judge William Wayne Justice was a legend in Texas legal circles. He had uh, issued significant rulings considering overcrowding in Texas prisons. That was probably one of his most infamous rulings because they've got everybody you know, not everybody, but many people around the state all up in arms. But he was known to be a very fair, very uh, careful uh, judge in terms of, of his interpretation and applying of the law. And the fact that Tyler was a defendant was, was a good example because it represented literally hundreds of similar districts across the state of Texas and frankly around the country. Small town, community, everyone knew, you know, everyone else in terms of, of proximity. And Judge Justice had also issued a ruling uh, some 
years before related to the education of Mexican-American students in the state of Texas. Maldef had gone before his court, basically pointing out that Texas was doing less than an adequate job of effectively educating the large proportion of Mexican-American students, legal residents that were attending Texas schools, but that achievement data and dropout data reflected were not being well served. And the judge had issued an order directing the state of Texas to re-examine the kinds of programs that were being developed and implemented for those children. And he gave them a set amount of time, I think it's approximately two years, you know, to develop new rules, regulations, improve guidance and support, and take action to improve the quality of education for minority students. So given that kind of history, people felt that we would get a fair hearing if we went before Judge Justice to argue the case. Yeah, Judge Justice has an amazing legacy and background. I know you and Dr. Cardenas have, have written about his amazing role in ensuring equal educational opportunity for all kids, and especially Mexican-American kids. So thank you for sharing that background. I think it's an important part of the story. Because we're doing some storytelling here, before we jump to the merits of the case, which we'll unpack, could you share a little bit about how you got involved in the case and how IDRA um, supported the litigation? There was an interesting development strategically as people examined what was the best approach to take. At one point, there was a clear decision made to focus the case in Tyler, go before Judge Justice, present all the testimony, uh, noting the tremendous harm that would be afforded the children that were going to be totally left out of the education system in Texas, understanding that if those children were not in school, they were going to be holed up either at home, afraid to go out for fear of somebody stopping them and asking a young 10 or 11 year old child, why are you not in school? Not to mention concerns around immigration, monitoring and and surveillance. So the, the initial conversation was focusing the case choosing one school district, taking it to Tyler, presenting the the facts and and the arguments before the judge and seeing what we could get from that action. That was actually initiated in 1977, where we went before Judge Justice. In that particular case, Dr. Cardenas served as the primary expert witness, given the fact that he'd been a teacher, a principal, and the superintendent and had, you know, over 20 years of experience working in Texas public schools, he was very well rounded in in the arguments that needed to be made about the impact on on children's lives by excluding them from access to education. But what happened in the interim is when the judge finally issued his ruling in 1978, I believe, he limited the injunction that allowed for enrollment of undocumented children just to Tyler ISD. That meant all other 1,100 districts in the state of Texas could continue to practice exclusion if they chose to do so. And many districts were 
choosing to continue to exclude children. At that time, a second group of attorneys, interestingly enough, out of California, led by an attorney named Peter Shea, had his own legal group and some additional friendly attorneys from California, ventured to Texas and they talked to immigrant parents that were being excluded from selected school districts. And in this particular case, it was the big guns in Texas. They, they went up against Dallas ISD and Houston ISD, who were very, very large districts, over 100,000. And then some suburban districts, including uh, Pasadena and Goose Creek, which are around the Houston area. And their intent was to challenge each of these districts individually in federal district court, some in the Eastern District, some in the Southern District, I think some even in, in, the, in the Northern District of the state of Texas. This, the Houston case was the first one that was going to be heard. These other cases were filed and began to surface and the federal courts, I guess, communicated and decided that all of these are essentially the same case just involving different plaintiffs. And they decided to consolidate these multiple cases into one case called the multi-district education case that involved uh, undocumented immigrant students. That case was heard before Judge Seals in Houston. There were several weeks of testimony. I testified in one portion of the case. Dr. Cardenas also testified. There was testimony from school districts on both sides of the issue, which was interesting. There were, just by way of information, a number of districts that wanted to exclude districts, justifying their actions on the basis of costs of educating these children. And also they complained that the enrollment of these children tended to affect the achievement levels of other children in the district. And, and therefore, wanted to exclude these children to help the children that were actually enrolled, which frankly didn't hold any water. Because when the testimony was presented, there was evidence showing that there was no change in achievement from the time the undocumented children attended school. And then after they left, after they left, there was no significant improvement in the educational performance of the children that continued to be enrolled. So that argument got totally blown out of the water. But what was a gratifying action that that we saw from our side is there were a number of school districts, including the very well-known Edgewood Independent School District, who at that time was the poorest school district in the state of Texas, that filed an amicus brief in support of the immigrant students that were being excluded and actually offered a written testimony in support of their inclusion. So again, Doe versus Platter was the initial court case filed in Judge Justice's court. But then there was a second parallel case involving Judge Seals in the multi-district litigation case. The significance of that second multi-district case is Judge Seals enjoined the whole state of Texas from excluding undocumented children from enrolling in their schools. And that was very important because, as we know, 
it takes a while for these kinds of cases to go through the court system. And it took over two years before the Dovey Plyder multi-district litigation case were decided and had that injunction not been uh, ordered, we would have had kids out of school for many, many years. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that context. And what an amazing experience. Thank you for sharing the experience that you and Dr. Cardenas had, you know, testifying in this case. Dr. Cardenas can't speak for himself on this, but I did have a chance to read some of his incredible writing, which you've also contributed to. And I just want to take a minute to share what he said about his experience testifying in the case. And he wrote, to this day, I fail to comprehend the viciousness and the tenacity of the educational leadership of the state of Texas the Texas Education Agency and other administrators from the effective school districts displayed a callousness to children, which defies explanation. The TEA fought the case tooth and nail in the courts, pursuing the appellate route through the Fifth Circuit and all the way to the Supreme Court. During the entire litigation, the educational leadership of the state was unique in providing objections, excuses, false estimates, invalid research findings, and erroneous testimony in an incomprehensible attempt to exclude these children from the public schools of Texas. It sounds like that was your perspective and experience as well. And, and thank goodness that we, we had the right you know, research and the correct research and policy on our side. And it was unbelievable you know, for us to have so many different educators coming out against helpless children whose only sin was to be with their parents. And they had no control over you know where they were living and the actions and as the court pointed out excluding children from education was not going to exert any control over the parents and the judge pointed out that it was a very irrational way of the state attempting to deal with something that was a totally different issue that should have been dealt with in a different context i sat with dr cardenas you know for for decades and, and learned a lot from him. But I, I felt that this particular case was one of the ones where I saw him most frustrated and, as he noted, most upset that so many of his colleagues who had gone into education to help children were going out of their way to deny them basic access to education and their tenaciousness, as he noted, they lost in federal district court more than a few times. Every time they lost in district court, they took it to the appeals court level. They would lose at the appeals court level, and then they'd get back together and regroup, and that's when they decided they were going to take it all the way to the Supreme Court. And we were confident, we were comfortable that we felt, well, this is such a critical issue that we should get a, a fair hearing from the U.S. Supreme Court. But it was a hard-fought battle, even at the Supreme Court level. And when Doe versus Platter was finally decided, some of us were having discussions. I thought it was going to go 9-0, because who would be against young children and their well-being at six, seven, nine, 12 years old? Some of my fellow eiders said, well, it, it might be a little closer. There were projecting 7-2, the decision actually came down to a 5-4 decision with a majority decision written by Justice Berger, I believe. 
Yeah. And you've, you've teed this up so nicely. So multiple rounds of opinions and orders at the district court level, multiple losses in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And finally, the cases come together at, at the U.S. Supreme Court, similarly to the Brown case, which we discussed in our last issue of this podcast, the cases were consolidated because they presented the same issue. So briefing, oral argument, and consolidated under the Plyler v. Doe style. And every Supreme Court case, right, revolves around a question presented. So the question that was presented to the U.S. Supreme Court in this case was whether, consistent with the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, Texas may deny to undocumented school-aged children the free public education that it provides to children of legally admitted citizens. You sort of teed up very nicely just the policy and the rhetorical position that the majority of the court took. But let's just take a quick step back. What were the main arguments that the school district made to the Supreme Court, you know, arguing that this was unconstitutional? Both the school districts in tandem, unfortunately, with the Texas Education Agency were essentially co-conspirators in the exclusion of these children, was that they had a rational basis for excluding these children because it would result in a cost savings to the state of Texas that they felt was more important than the harm that would be caused by excluding the children from access to education. And the court disagreed. The Supreme Court certainly disagreed, as did the lower courts, and said in an issue as vital as basic education, which essentially will have a lifelong impact on the well-being of the people that are impacted, we can't simply look at whether there's a rational explanation for taking such a drastic action against these innocent individuals. And they decided, no, you needed to have a much more strong argument, something that would survive a strict scrutiny examination, which, as we know, requires a much higher bar that there has to be such compelling uh, damage done to the districts and or to the state of Texas that the lifelong harm that would be done to children would be offset by whatever benefit would be derived to the state or to the districts. And as the testimony was presented before the Supreme Court, it became very obvious very quickly to the court that there was nowhere near a balanced rationale for excluding children versus providing the benefits of education to the the, the children in question. And the court noted all of the impact, not not only on the children and their inability to to find employment, uh, their impact on healthcare, the effects on social services needs, and even going all the way to the court system and and legal kinds of issues that they might confront if they were totally denied an education. If anything, the the, the court noted that denial of the class of undocumented immigrant children, denial of an education would create an underclass of citizens that research had shown that of people that immigrated into this country even if they were undocumented, approximately 70% would wind up 
living their life in this country. And the judges took note of the fact that to deny children that would eventually spend the rest of their lives in this country, to deny them the basic benefits of education was totally indefensible and unjust. And they ruled accordingly. Thank you so much for laying that out. You know, I think building on that last point about being indefensible and unjust, um, I had an opportunity to go back and just reflect on the opinion, giving its anniversary coming up. And I had forgotten this, but what struck me um, is that in the opening argument that the state made is that they actually told the Supreme Court that the children of undocumented families are not legally persons under the U.S. Constitution. And I I just thought how breathtakingly horrible (laughs) that taking that sort of position and defending that in the U.S. Supreme Court is. That was an interesting bit of, I, I thought almost like a desperate move on the part of the state attorneys arguing that that the 14th Amendment talked about persons under jurisdiction of the governing entity, and they're arguing that these undocumented children weren't persons. And I thought, well, if they weren't persons, then by God, what would you call them? And I'm glad you noted that, because that was the opening most significant point that was made in the decision that was rendered. Absolutely. And, and you hinted at the, the court's ruling that the court in a five to four opinion, which uh, I sort of, I guess I should have known this, but I, I had forgotten that it was that close, um, which I agree with you is remarkable considering the stakes. But the majority, you know, did recognize the significance of, you know, having access on an equal basis to a public education where the state makes it available. And I'll just read some of the, you know, language picking up on your point of punishing, you know, these innocent children. That's exactly what the court found, especially persuasive, right? Even if the state found it expedient to control the conduct of adults by acting against their children, which in a separate opinion, um, several justices wrote <laughs> vehemently about how awful that policy would be. The court went on to say legislation directing the onus of a parent's misconduct against his children does not comport with fundamental concepts of justice. Uh, The court again recognized the pivotal role of education in sustaining our political and cultural heritage and found that denial of education to some isolated group of children poses an affront to one of the goals of the Equal Protection Clause, the abolition of governmental barriers presenting unreasonable obstacles the advancement on the basis of individual merit. And I think that speaks quite directly to what you were sharing in terms of these are people who are in our community, they're going to be here contributing to our community for years, decades, for their lifetime, and not truly recognizing the bad policy of of the Texas law and the good policy of of having access for, for all students. I was not as aware at the time when we were arguing the case I knew how significant it was, but I remember when the decision finally came down that day when it was announced and the ruling was announced, what a tremendous victory that was, but more importantly, what a tremendous relief it was for that fundamental issue about children having access to public schools was, and I smiled as I thought back, that let it be Texas. It it, it wasn't ironic to me that it was a Texas-based ruling that the rest of the country, I know California, 
was watching. I suspect Florida was watching as well as New York and all the states around the country were sitting back and taking note. And I felt the great relief that came with the recognition that this was going to be a national ruling and that children all over the country were going to be protected without having to fight 50 different cases uh, over many, many years. Yeah, as you were speaking, I mean, I literally have goosebumps thinking about the just the importance of that moment, the victory, the brave families, right, and the amazing attorneys from Maldive and elsewhere that represented them and got it to this point. And the impact of this ruling right can't be understated. I mean, it's since been codified. The holding of Pilar has been codified in federal law. The Department of Education, U.S. Department of Education and every state agency has issued guidance, you know, instructing schools on how to comply with its mandate. And so maybe you could share a minute or so about what does Plyler require going forward? What are the protections that immigrant youth have available to them because of this ruling? Well, of course, now, you know, it is applicable across the country. Their undocumented children are eligible for admission in any public school in the U.S. and, and its territories. And we, we, we've also had the benefit now of decades of having these children enrolled in K through 12. Many of them have gone on to colleges and universities. All of the, the children that benefited are the country and the states are reaping the benefits of them having acquired an education. They earn decent salaries, they go on and become professionals, contribute to their communities. And the fact that we've had the opportunity now of several decades of seeing the kind of contributions that these individuals are making across the country, I think totally blew out of the water all of the excuses and claims that were being made initially that were being used to justify their exclusion. Now that we've had decades of the children being enrolled, we can see the benefits. We can see the tremendous amount of contributions, again, as I said before, that they've made and will continue to make. And I know that, uh, interestingly enough, the, the debate now it's, it's almost like a wave as, as I look back on it. And we started with elementary school children. And now the, there's battles being fought over access to higher education. And when the children in Texas started graduating, the Texas legislature actually adopted policies that would facilitate these individuals continuing on to college, particularly since they knew that we're already in the process of applying for legal status if they had achieved it already. And unfortunately, because of the re-emergence of anti-immigrant sentiments, unfortunately fanned by a small minority of prejudiced individuals that have problems with immigrant people in general, beginning to now challenge whether or not undocumented immigrant children that even if they're in the process of getting legal residency uh, in Texas, there was a recent court ruling that 
was talking about making those individuals pay out-of-state tuition, which would make college access, it would take it out of reach for many kids because they would not have resources needed. And as I heard the arguments, I heard echoes of Dobie Plyler and the self-same arguments that the anti-immigrant coalitions were making against uh, school-age children at the time. Also causing us worry is, unfortunately, our, our governor, Governor Abbott here in Texas, as he desperately fights for re-election with very low approval ratings across the state for a, a number of questionable decisions that he's made, employing National Guard on the border, and, and I won't go into details, but deciding recently, he, he made a statement that he might consider along with the Attorney General, going back and challenging Doe versus Plyler. But it's been established law for you know, over 40 years now. And of course, that would cause great concern, in part because we've seen this particular Supreme Court not seem to have the same respect for presidents that I thought was a given in the courts. Right. And certainly having concerns about the governor's statements and this for many years now, this rising xenophobic anti-immigrant rhetoric in Texas politics and, of course, nationally. It is a call for concern and to pay attention and to stay engaged and stay active. But, you know, I think it's so important to reiterate that the law today is very clear and that not only did the ruling in Plyler v. Doe invalidate the Texas law, but it has become the foundation of a whole host of of compliance requirements for schools, right? So schools are not allowed to ask for things like social security numbers, birth certificates, to ask questions that would chill students' rights to access free public education in Texas and elsewhere. And I think it's so important to remind our listeners of that, that the law has not changed and to, you know, provide context. I think right after the governor made those statements, Maldef issued an excellent statement, which pointed out sort of the, what's the right word? I guess really the silliness of a statement. The state was a, was a defendant to the case, not the plaintiffs. And so trying to assert that somehow the state will bring some sort of action to invalidate this is not consistent with how the pilot case was litigated, as you've laid out. And I was really encouraged, Dr. Cortez, with the response from the school community after the governor's statements, maybe this is something that we can be optimistic about given the evidence that we've seen since the ruling, right? I'm not aware of a school district that supported the governor's statement and to the contrary, every major school district and small districts issued statements immediately saying, we care about educating our kids and and that's not what we're interested in focusing on. And, And I think that enlightenment that we saw among many, many school officials all across the state, south, northeast, west, Texas, uh, central Texas, low-wealth districts, high-wealth districts, I I think in part was there were lessons learned once the children were allowed to enroll. And in some cases, we heard reports that immigrant children were actually doing academically better than some of our native-born children, in part because they hadn't gotten a solid elementary foundation in their home country. And when they transitioned over, they were actually outperforming some of our own minority children here in the state of Texas. 
The other lesson I think that many of our school officials learned is that it was a red herring on the part of some state officials talking about the thousands of children that were going to be overrunning the Texas borders in order to enroll in Texas public schools. After the case was decided, we and and some people from the University of Texas conducted a survey of school districts asking for the numbers of kids, undocumented children that wound up enrolling. Statewide, the total we got was less than 15,000 across over 1,000 school districts. Significantly, 75% had no immigrant children enrolled at all. And of those that did have enrollment, there were only about 20 districts that had more than 20 immigrant students enrolled in, in there. And the numbers went down. So all told, there might have been about 200 districts, but the counts in the majority of those districts were less than five kids. So I think what Texas school officials learned is like, hey, we, we can handle this. And not only that, whatever concerns proved to be unfounded, and they found out that these children were like every other child, eager to learn, respectful, and particularly given their status, I think very much appreciative of the opportunity to attend and achieve in public education. Those lessons, I think, will stay with us, hopefully. And, and I think the positions that we saw school officials taking, I think, are a credit to the behavior and the attitudes and the performance of the children that were allowed to enroll. I can't think of a better way to go out. You're absolutely right, Dr. Cortez. And I thank you so much for sharing your tremendous insight and experience for your role in shaping this amazing, significant case and victory for civil rights and education and for your continued work to support equitable access to both K-12 and higher ed institutions today. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your background and your wisdom with our listeners. And I look forward to having you back on the podcast another time, talk about another case. Thank you. And I would close by urging all of the people that are listening to remind ourselves that when it comes to children, that we must be ever vigilant and ever ready to protect the lives of those that are our future. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to this episode of our Class Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.